Yeah. So whenever you're inside of things, you know, whether it's like business or in your personal life or whatever, it's so hard to be able to see it just because you're living it like first experience. Even if you think in terms of like an analogy for that could be like a, a band or an artist or something like that. Like, you know, um, think of a random example, like Elton John doesn't know what Elton John sounds like. You know what yeah. I mean? He knows like what his, exp he, he knows what he's trying to do and like what, yeah. but no one just goes, no, but you're, you, yeah, that's clearly Elton John. Like everyone, you can hear all the stuff, you know, all the chord structures, all the yeah. textures, all the choices. Like it's so clearly him. And he's just like, I'm just trying to write music over here. I don't know what that is, you know? If yeah. anything, he's thinking about the next thing, you know, yeah. um, and avoiding the familiarity. And so we do that in our lives. You know, it's like when you're in the driver's seat there, you just can't see your own blind spots. And, and it's so it's so challenging. You know, how did you, you know, start to get some light in those blind spots whenever you were in the midst of your business? Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it was interesting having never really, you know, I, I didn't go to college and I, I didn't, I, I didn't work in any traditional jobs and I became a hairstylist and, um, and I'd never been in a lot of situations where I was, um, you know, having to like manage people and navigate relationships, not, not, not much anyways. And my parents had their own business and they were entrepreneurs. So I, I learned a little bit watching them, but I, you know, it was, it, it was a, such a, it was such a like on the job kind of thing. And, and I, th I think what I started to learn about myself in the early dry bar years was that I was pretty conflict avoidant and I struggled with, you know, getting, you know, be having those hard conversations and, and real and not, not really realizing the severity and the potential damage that would come from not having those important conversations. And it really wasn't until, um, you know, my, my brother is my co-founder, Michael Landau, as well as my ex-husband, Cameron Webb. And we all have our different lanes. And, you know, Michael would tell, would start to tell me that people were like scared of me, which I was like, I'm not scary. And he was like, well, you know, and what, what was the scary part was that, you know, I would walk into a dry bar and like lose my mind because you know, it's like a blessing and a curse. I think of an entrepreneur is like you, walk in and you see like all the things wrong that aren't going right. And you're, you, you lose your mind. Whereas like, you know, most people won't see all of those things or notice all those things. They'll see more of what's going right. Although I do have a theory that when you walk into any business, if something doesn't feel right, you start, your brain naturally starts to like see all the other things wrong and yeah, yeah. I can go down a real rabbit hole. And so I would come in and, and I'd be really frustrated at, you know, whatever was going on. And I would, I would get obviously very upset and people, or I would go get like towels and start cleaning fl the floorboard <laughs> which really set everybody into a tizzy, which still, I was kind of like, well, it's dirty. So I'm going to clean it, you know? And, and so that, you know, I, and then I would, you know, you could obviously see it on my face that I was upset. And then I would like, you know, not always talk to people the way I should. And, and, and it really took a lot of coaching. And really when our, we hired a professional CEO, John Hefner to come in and we were probably like 10 or 11 stores in, you know, and he, um, he was like, you know, it, it's, it's really important for you when you walk in the stores at this point with as big as the company has gotten and people, you know, are, are working for you that they want to feel like a certain sense of like, 
you know, like they're doing a good job, you know? And in my mind, I'm like, well, if they're not doing a good job, they need to know that, you know? And it's like, well, there's a way to communicate that versus like, you know, coming in and being all annoyed. And so, you know, it would, it, it would take me some time to get comfortable with, um, how to deliver information in a better way, which meant like, you know, being really, intentional with our executive team. Cause I would be mad at them too, because I'd walk in and be like, why is it, why are we paying all these people and things still aren't working the way I want them to, you know? And on the flip side of that, the store was popping, but the numbers were incredible. People were super happy. Like it wasn't all going bad. I think I felt this responsibility. Like I needed to be the one who was so extra over the top paranoid so that it did stay at that level. You know? Yeah, that makes total sense. Also, especially like the first five years or how, how many ever years you are as an entrepreneur, you're in like pirate mode. You're the only oh. one out there. You're in the middle of the ocean. You got to find gold. And so you're just like willing yeah. to do whatever you got to do. You don't think you just do it. You improve things. You look for problems. You know, you yeah. fix things. And then as you were talking about, like once things start to become more successful, there's a not, it's not necessarily maturing, just a shift in role because yes. then there's should be people that you've hired doing those things. Yeah. And now you're, you know, that, but it's so in your DNA and you're in that momentum of it for so long that it's hard to, you know, break out of that for sure. I can imagine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really like, you know, one of the things I talk about so much in the book is like learning to delegate, learning to trust other people, learning to let other people make mistakes, like the mistakes I made, you know, I, right. I think I had, this very myopic view in the earlier days that if I didn't do it and somebody else did it and they did it, you know, wrong or the way I wouldn't have done it, like the whole company was going to implode, which sounds ridiculous even coming out of my mouth. But I really believed that to a certain extent back then, you know, and I, and I talk about a lot in the book, the importance of not only allowing people the opportunity to learn from, you know, from, and, and give them the, give them the, you know, the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, but also it's like, give them the opportunity to fail and to, and to make the same mistakes I did. Cause I, you know, I made so many mistakes, so many, you know, I did so many things wrong, but I learned so much from that. It's like, how else is anybody else going to learn if they're not given the same opportunities I was to, you know, try to figure it out as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so your book, you know, we talked a little about this before we started recording, but your book, The Messy Truth, it's such a great and unique um, premise for a book, you know, just cataloging in parallel your personal journey as you start and found and launch and then eventually sell this hugely successful bu business. So it's really great the, the way that you have the, you know, kind of here's what happened. Here's what I was feeling. Here's what was going on in the business at the time. And then here yeah. are the takeaways of kind of each chapter of your life, you know, and the businesses that was happening. I think it's a great, great thing out there for um, people who are looking to start businesses themselves or also people who are currently, you know, in the midst of their own business, but also for people that are just, um, being a human, you know, it's so great because you know, it's like all these things apply to just life, you know? Um, yeah. and I think that one of the big ones that you touch on in there that I'd love to talk about is people before they start there, or maybe at the beginning of their professional journey, you know, this big thing, they have this idealized idea of success and what it means to kind of quote unquote, like make it and to, you know, become really wealthy or to become well known or to just scale some company, something, whatever. 
you could even translate it down to like become the president of a company as opposed mm -hmm. to a, a director or something like that. Yeah. But it often does not really, that idea of what that means doesn't necessarily match up with the reality of what that means. Yeah. You know? So from your perspective, on the other side of that, what is the sort of vision of that desire that controls and makes a lot of people suffer? You know, the, the idea of like, ah, I haven't made it to this. I want this. I want that. Cause a lot of suffering. Your view from the other side of that, how does that look to you now? That's a good question. I mean, I think it, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Um, you know, I think that it's, um, you know, it's also just happens to be an interesting time in my life. And, um, you know, because I haven't been super transparent with what's been going on in my personal life, which is that I'm going through a second divorce, which it's in the book. What's well, an afterward that I had to add into the book, which was super fun too. Um, <laughs> but I, but I bring it up based on your question, because I think that like, we think we want one end goal in our lives and then we get that thing. And then we're like, Oh shit, that I'm not happy here either. Now mm -hmm. what, you know, where I think I've been experiencing that for years now because, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm, next to my children, there's nothing I'm more proud of than this company that I've built. And I, and it has been incredibly gratifying and satisfying. Um, however, like anything, the downside of that has been, it became, and this is on me and this is like the work that I'm doing now, but like it became my identity. You know, it's like, if I'm not the founder of dry bar, who am I, you know, to the point where I'm like, if I'm not recognized as the founder of dry bar, if I'm not introduced as the founder of dry bar, I'm like, you know, I get a little pissy because I'm like, well, if you don't know that I'm the founder of dry bar, you're not going to think I'm important or like really like me. Mm -hmm. And which is like, how fucked up is that? <laughs> right. But it is true. If I'm being really honest, which I really pride myself on. And so much of the book is really this, this, you know, conflict that we have within ourselves. And like, for me, you know, and now I'm doing a lot of like inner child work and now I'm starting to understand all of that a little bit more and why that is, um, where I, I realize how it's like, it shifted into my relationships because I need, I, I now know that I need a lot of outside validation and, and dry bar was like, uh, outside validation on a silver platter, you know, it was like, right. on one hand it was like, it's like the coolest thing ever. And and I'm, and I, like I said, I'm so proud of it and, and all of that, but it's like, I, I want to be the kind of person that doesn't need to be introduced like that in order to be, feel important, you know? And so, you know, going back to your question, I think that like, there is this, like, you're always kind of searching for the next thing and, and this, this goal. And then when you get there, you know, making sure that you are in, intact enough internally that it doesn't like rule or wreck your world, you know, where I found that like once the dry bar train kind of came to an end, you know, and I, my first marriage came to an end and my identity shifted and then COVID happened, which, you know, sprinkled in more identity crisis for all of us. Right. Then, then it was like, Oh, now I need this outside validation from, from some other source, which I largely thought it should come from a man, you know? And so it's like, you know, we, it just goes back to feeling like, you know, making sure that you're in, internally secure enough um, 
And I feel like maybe I'm not answering your question. I went off on like a tangent. Yeah. You know, and I think as you're, you know, advancing in your career and you're going for these goals, it's like, you know, keeping yourself grounded of like, you know, and also having some, you know, some, some ability to zoom out and know that like, if this isn't the right thing, that's okay. You know, I think we get, we, you know, for me anyways, I held things very tightly, which I think, you know, also was, um, you know, part of the process for me, as I was like, we were trying to grow this company as the founder and trying to delegate and have more people take on more responsibility. It's like, you have to give that up and you have to let people make mistakes and all of that. Um, and, and just how hard that can be if you're not like secure enough in, in yourself and your, and your company really for that matter of like trying to make sure that you know, you're holding the reins so tightly that it's gonna, as soon as you let go, the whole thing's going to fall apart, you know? And, um, so that was, you know, a big lesson I learned and something that I talk about quite a bit in the book of like, you know, learning how to let go a little bit, which I think again is like a metaphor for life. You know, it's like anything that we hold too tightly, we suffocate eventually, essentially, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so the premise of the podcast is, you know, and then it hit me, it's essentially, I like to look at like the before and after of a person's experience. So before, in your case, before you made dry bar a success, what was the insight you had or what was a key insight that was kind of a turnkey moment that helped you make that a reality, right? And so, but before we proceed with that answer, I want to do kind of a first, I haven't done this before, but I think in your circumstance, it's a, a valuable thing to do. So we'll do two insights here. So two transformative thoughts that led you to experience one of those would be what was the thing that helped you really make dry bar and choose to kind of tune your mindset to make that a reality and make that successful and then the second one is what is something that you realized that helped you realize it was time to end mm. and leave that mm -hmm. space yeah well the idea you know for dry bar really came from i mean it goes, I guess, probably like any good idea. It goes, it went back pretty far. I mean, I, I grew up in South Florida. I had naturally curly hair. My hair was always kind of crazy. And I was really just mystified by how women had like, you know, smooth, bouncy curls and just kind of fascinated by the whole thing. And, you know, fast forward to to not going to college and going, deciding to go to beauty school against my parents' better judgment. Um, but, you know, obviously they proved them wrong there. Um, but anyways, you know, deciding to go to, to, to really follow this passion of this thing that I love with hair. And, and then I, you know, I, I met my first husband when I did in New York city and we moved to LA and I started a mobile blowout business and, and really saw that there was kind of this massive hole in the marketplace. And as a, a you know, a, a woman and a consumer who loved getting my hair blown out, which I really only got done when I would get my hair cut or colored, like most women, you know, pre dry bar 13 years ago, it was like, Oh, when you went to the hair salon and they cut your hair and colored it, then they blow it out and style it. And, and you'd feel like that day or like for the next couple of days, really great because your hair looked really good. And, you know, as women, that's a big part of our kind of armor, like feeling it's like getting, putting on a great outfit or a great lipstick or, you know, just some, that kind of exterior stuff that makes us feel really confident on the inside. And so you know, I, from, from operating this mobile blowout business where I was only charging $40, it was like, 
one of those crazy things where I was like, I just was doing this to get out of the house for a couple hours. Like my kids were little at the time. They were about two and four, I guess, when I started this mobile business. And, 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 and again, the impetus for it was like, I just wanted to do something for myself. You know, I had been a stay at home mom, which I felt like incredibly grateful and lucky to be able to do that because that is in and of itself, probably the hardest job there is. And, you know, and I, and I loved that I had the opportunity financially that I was able to stay home. But after about, uh, you know, four or five years of that, I just missed doing something for myself, which led me to do the mobile blowout business because I'd been doing hair for years. And, you know, and that's really when I discovered the price point, which I was charging only $40 and giving people a really amazing blowout and experience, albeit in like their living room, I got so busy so fast to the point where I was having to say no to more people than I was saying yes to because I had to go pick up my kids and it just like wasn't viable. And I don't think I actually really made any money <laughs> charging $40 between gas and all of that. But what was, you know, the most obviously important and illuminating part of that is like, you know, learning that this is something that women really love and at the right price point, they'll pay for, uh, to do more regularly. And, and it's funny because when I was starting my brother who, um, you know, he's that he never worked in this world and like hair or anything like that. And he's bald and he was like, you know what, like just totally lost on him. And he was like, I don't, won't women only want this for, you know, a special occasion, like a wedding or a bar mitzvah. And I was like, I don't think so. I think women who have like, you know, frizzy hair, don't know how to control their hair, which was the vast majority of women. I think they're going to want to do this just like on a Tuesday before they pick up their kid from school, you know? And, and that really would end up being the behavior that it was like across the gamut. And we started in LA. It's like everything from like mom's stay-at-home moms, working moms, actresses, business women, like you name it. And, you know, and what we didn't, re we realized like we inadvertently, you know, came across a whole in a, in a massive marketplace. I mean, the hair industry is a billion dollar industry, you know, but we realized that nobody had isolated out just the blowouts. And for me, you know, it was so organic and natural because I always, even when I was cutting hair in a full service salon, I loved getting through the haircut and styling and blowing out a woman's hair because that's when you really saw her come to life and like feel really good about herself. And, um, you know, one of the takeaways that we didn't take from, from, you know, from traditional salons was like women are historically sitting in front of a mirror, getting their hair cut, which you need as a stylist for a mirror, but for a blowout, you don't. And I was like, I wanted to, I learned from my mobile business that women weren't sitting in front of a mirror. Most of the time I wasn't in their personal bathroom. I was usually like in their living room. So they weren't looking at themselves. So like that level of stress was gone too for them. Cause they're like not looking at themselves and picking themselves apart and saying, I look tired and blah, right. blah. And then I, as a stylist can sh tell them when like, I'm good and ready for them to go look at their hair, they'd get up, they'd run to a mirror. And then I'd hear this like squeal of delight, you know? And, I, and, and the crossroads came when I was just like having to say no more than I was saying yes, because I was, I was just one person. And then that's when I went to my brother and said, Hey, I, I, I think I want to turn my mobile business into a brick and mortar, but I need help. And I don't really know how to do this totally by myself. And he, you know, that was the first time I had heard the term sweat equity where he was like, you're, I'm going to, I'll put up all the money and I'll take 50% of the business. You'll be in the store every day. I was like, great. You know, I was like, this is, this seems like a great deal, you know? And that was really how it all started. And then, you know, we were lucky and super fortunate that Cameron, my ex-husband was able to he, had, he was a creative director. So he had that piece of it. And I knew the hair world and Michael knew, you know, the business side of it. So it was like, 
was so like capturing lightning in a bottle. It really was because like you couldn't, you couldn't have, we couldn't have afforded any of us technically, you know, because in the, you know, if you were to go and try to build something like this and you had to hire all these people, but you didn't have any money. And, you know, so it was like, it was a really interesting situation. And it was also in 2010 that we opened the first store. So it was like, we were just coming off of another recession and it was, it was wild, you know, but it was like, we, like I said, inadvertently kind of stumbled upon this big hole in the marketplace and this thing that women really wanted, they just didn't totally know that they wanted it, you know, Mm -hmm. which also is like such a huge thing that I talk about so much. I definitely talked about in the book is like, you know, people obviously don't know what they always want or need. You know, it's like a, a handful of women over the years for sure said to me, Oh, I had this idea. I just didn't think it would work. I'm like, well, you know, you know, welcome to like the, you know, most people don't think most ideas are going to work. And frankly, most ideas don't work, you know, but it was like, like I said, the fact that I had the experience that I had, my brother had the experience he had, Cam had the experience he had, that it was just like, we just really captured this. And it was, it was bananas. And it was so wild the way people responded to this. And, you know, it became this affordable luxury that women, you know, really, really came to love and, and to put into, you know, a part of their daily lives or daily use. Yeah. So throughout that whole trajectory, what was kind of a moment that something really clicked for you where you just knew that like, if you start doing this, you know, that things are really going to start popping with it. Well, I mean, it was so early that we knew because, because it was, you know, we opened the first door in February of 2010 and, um, in this, this shopping center called Brentwood gardens, if you're familiar with LA, it's, it's right on San Vicente. And, and the reason we went with that location was because it was like a thoroughfare and we felt like people driving back and forth, were going to be able to see it. Um, but at the time, like I said, you know, it was kind of a recession. The shopping center was pretty dead and Michael and I would walk through and be like, you know, gosh, like scary that this, like, are people going to come, you know, but they did. And, you know, we had, we had a great, um, you know, press came in really easy because it was a brand new concept. So it garnered a lot of press and, you know, women were talking about this a ton. You could book online and whatever. And we were so busy from day one, truly like totally underprepared, didn't have enough stylists, like didn't have enough of anything. And I, I mean, within that first like few days, we were like, holy shit, we are on to something. I mean, we knew it almost instantly. And we were so underprepared for it, which was a great problem to have, you know? And then it was like, we opened the second location within six months of that first location, which is crazy sounding saying it now it's like six months so fast, but at the time it felt like an eternity because we were so busy in Brentwood and we couldn't get women in and women were coming over from the Valley and it was just so crazy. Um, and so we knew pretty early on that like the combination of this inexpensive price point with this like very high end feeling and looking place that had a great experience. Stylists were all really good. There was, you know, like a girly chick flick playing, you charge your iPhone. The music was pumping. Like we served champagne. Like it was great. People loved it. And it just really struck a chord. And that's, you know, we knew very early on that we were, we were onto something and, you know, and our lives were about to change quite significantly, especially mine. Yeah. 
when did you what was it that made you decide it was time to to sell because you know it's such a huge part of your life and as you've mentioned before your identity and i think that you know whether it's a business or it's a transition in in your personal life you know that person's going through just looking at something that's such a huge part of you and deciding it's time to let that go and move forward is you know terrifying for a lot of people and and really scary so what was it that that made you realize it was time and what was that whole process like for you well you know it's important to point out too that you know this whole the process of of starting dry bar and selling dry bar was about 10 years you know which is it's just a significant amount of time and important to point out that you know, I didn't go into this business hoping to make millions of dollars. I went in this business because I loved the business and I loved the idea and the concept. And I loved, and I still do like love, you know, building something. And I just, I just point that out because I think there we do live in a day and age where like, listen, I'm as opportunistic as the next person. And, you know, if you see a great idea and opportunity, like take it all day long. But I think a lot of people get into business, like because they want to make a million dollars versus like, because they love what they're doing, which is, a bad idea in my humble opinion. Anyways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, moving on to like, you know, we saw the writing on the wall and this business was growing and growing and growing. And, you know, f- f- we, and we had, we had raised a lot of money. We raised about 75 million in total. The stores were expensive to build. And, and, you know, another thing to point out is that, um, we took money off the table every time we raised money, which is, you know, um, I don't know if it's like a dirty little secret or not, but like, a lot of private equity and venture capital companies will do that because, you know, you want the founder to feel like they've, you know, they've got like some, they've got some fruits of their and rewards of their labor, but then there's still enough equity to keep working hard. And, and I thought that was really great because that's exactly what it did. It was like, Oh, we can buy our first house. We still need to work our asses off if we're going to get to this like potential finish line, which, you know, in the early days it was like, I don't, we weren't, I wasn't thinking at all about selling the business. We were just thinking about growing. We were having the time of our lives and, and that was it. You know, I would say probably around year seven or eight that our, or maybe six or seven that our investors started to feel like, like any investors, like they want to see return on their money. And so what's the exit strategy look like? And those conversations started happening and it was like, do we IPO or do we sell? And, um, you know, and then what happened in, around the time those conversations were starting to happen was I was, my life, my personal life started to implode and I was going through a divorce and my son was going through a really hard time and ended up going into rehab. And so I had kind of started to step away from the business and grant you, this was like six or seven years in and we had brought in a lot of people to do a lot of the things that I used to do. You know, we brought in a professional CEO, we brought in a head of, you know, retail product. I mean, you name it, our, 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 you know, our company GNA had gotten so big that, you know, it felt like an okay time for me to slowly start to step away and just continue to do a handful of things. Um, but at the time I had shared an office with Cam and so, I, I, when we got separated, I was like, I'm not going to go to this office anymore. So for me, it was like an unraveling emotionally and spiritually. Whereas, you know, the company was also now starting to think about, um, you know, unwinding and potentially selling. And so I think, you know, that's when we started talking and thinking about it. Um, and you know, I don't know, it might've been different if, if, uh, if we hadn't gotten divorced and how, I'm not sure how I would have felt about it, but I think that I started to emotionally detach from the company around year seven or eight because of everything that was happening. And I really had to take care of myself and my family and reestablish my life. 
Um, but it was, it was definitely messy. <laughs> so yeah, so it was, you know, it was an interesting time. And, and like I said, our investors were getting a little antsy to start selling and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, um, you know, I, it's funny now when I talk to people who have, I was just talking to a guy who has a, a big company in there. He's like, you know, me and my wife love running it and we want to keep running it for the foreseeable future. And I was like, huh, I, yeah, no, I didn't want to keep doing that. You know, I mean, for me, I felt like I was ready to explore new things. I wanted to try my hand at different opportunities personally and professionally. And I also think I started to feel like while we were making new products and we were doing new things, there was certainly a sense of like, I think I've done like all I can do here. All I, all I want to do here. And I want to move on to the next thing. And I, I was, you know, I mean, the fact that I stayed in it 10 years, I've not done anything for that long in my life. <laughs> so right. it was, uh, you know, that was something in and of itself. Yeah. So, so was the transition a little bit easier for you because you had had some time to kind of detach from, emotionally from the experience someone asked me once if i had spiritually was okay with selling dry bar and i had my first response was like yeah no i'm great i'm glad you know and just like a very flippant not giving it a lot of thought answer and then uh i but that question stuck in my head and i was like oh, i don't know man i'm not okay with it spiritually and i think what started to happen was you know feeling this like you know you just pondering the question more and like thinking, you know, this was like a, my baby and I built and grew and nurtured this thing. And now I really have nothing to do with it. And that's a weird detachment, you know? And, uh, and it's funny cause I have an 18 year old son, the one who went to rehab, who's doing really well now. He, I just took him to college a couple months ago and, but you know, I still talk to him, <laughs> you know, mm. it's like, I don't, I have nothing to do with dry bar. I have no association with the company whatsoever now. And so, yeah, that is, that, I think that in it, that I don't think I put enough weight on how much that would affect me emotionally and to not be at the helm of this brand that I built. Um, and I think I'm still kind of dealing with the fallout of like how that feels to not be running this brand and then getting, you know, DMS or, you know, emails of like, things having changed a lot and whatever. And also, also then just having to put like a little bit of a boundary up of like, I did, I took it as far as I could take it and it's not my responsibility anymore, which, it, which it all feels a little bit weird, but also just, you know, par for the course. And I think it is like as an entrepreneur, if you're going to build and grow a company, you have to know that like that might end up happening and, and, you know, making peace with it. Um, or, or, you know, selling to somebody who wants you to stay involved and someone who wants you to be a part of it, just kind of, it all just depends on where you want to be. You know, for me, I was ready to move on. It doesn't, doesn't make it necessarily that much easier, but I know it was like the right thing for me. And I'm really happy where I am in my life now, for sure. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, yeah. What, what were some of the ways that you kind of grounded yourself after that experience? Because just going hard for 10 years and then just stopping, I can't imagine that just the momentum and kind of even just the dopamine rushes that you get throughout the day, you know, going back to just all of a sudden it's like quiet. Like how did you reground? Well, therein lies the, the struggle that I deal with all the time. You know, I think, you know, back to the, I don't know if we talked about this before we were recording or not, but like the, you know, that dopamine hit is very real and that like struggle to feel okay and, and get that 
and need that outside validation like a drug is dangerous, you know? And for me, I don't know if it's true of like all founders and whatever and people who've started companies, but, you know, because Drybar was such a unique concept and because we were able, you know, we got, I was the face and out front of it. Like I was, you know, I was getting a lot of like personal accolades and I was doing things like I was on covers of magazines and doing TV stuff. And I was a guest, a guest shark on Shark Tank and like all this really cool shit. And as you know, that started to change. And I was like, well, who am I now? Um, is, you know, there, there, there in lies like an identity, um, you know, crisis and, and going from being and doing all of that to the quiet has been quite challenging. I, I also then rushed into a new relationship, um, which also, you know, <laughs> I've been likening it to, I'm not sure if you saw this movie, or if your listeners will remember this um, runaway bride with Julia Roberts, which my you know mm-hmm. best friend mm-hmm. was telling about, which basically she 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 keeps leaving men at the altar and ultimately realizes like she doesn't know how she likes her own eggs and she eats <laughs> her eggs the way everybody she's with us. And I was like, wow, I think that might be me a little bit, you know, of like enmeshing into whatever was happening versus like learning who I am. So this this phase of my life has become a little bit of like a self exploration of what do I like and who am I and what do I want to be doing? I almost feel a lot like I'm like in my twenties again, you know, mm-hmm. cause you remember in your early twenties when you're like, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? And you're trying all this stuff. Who am I? Where do I want to be? Where do I want to live? Who do I want to be with? Like all of those questions. Like I am back in that phase, which is not where I ever thought I'd be at 48 years old, but here I am, <laughs> you know? And so I think it's like, you know, I mean, I, I've done a lot of work on myself very recently and a lot of like, I've read, you name it, I've read it. And I'm, you know, really have come to realize that like it all goes the way it's supposed to. And, you know, and, and it's, and you end up where you're supposed to be and, and you're all, they're all lessons to be learned. And I'm really trying to embrace that. Like, you know, this is all, you know, I, I don't know if I completely believe in like everything happens, like there's a big plan and we're just all on this plan and that's going to happen no matter what. But I think that we, you know, there is a general directions that, that our life is supposed to go and we're, you know, we're kind of sent here to navigate it. I, I heard, um, Brene Brown, which I'm sure you know and follow and all of that. Of course, like she, yeah. she, um, she, there was a video she posted a while ago, but it stuck with me. Maybe you saw it where she was like, you know, you get to the middle point of your life, the universe like taps you on the shoulder and says like, you can't get away with this shit anymore. You know? And I was like, Oh my God, you know, that is so me, you know, it's like, I've been like dodging a lot my, you know, for a long time that I'm like, because of the quiet and where my life is now, I've had to like, be like, okay, I guess I'm going to deal with this now, you know, which I'm, which is like a brutal gift that has been delivered to me, you know, which my life coming to a standstill, in in a lot of ways, professionally and personally, and like reinventing myself at this, you just don't think you're going to reinvent yourself at this point in your life. I mean, I don't know, maybe you do, maybe, maybe it's more common than people think it's like the midlife crisis and like, you know, right. but it's an, it's an interesting place to be for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it's all about perspective. It's like, it can feel like everything's being taken away or it can be like looking, looked at with curiosity and excitement where it's like, whoa, I get to choose now with yeah. all of the experience I have, like what my life's going to look like in this chapter. You know? Yeah. Which I'm choosing the latter for sure now. 
<laughs> so and we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I'm just curious, like after you sold dry bar and of course, you know, those sales and things are generally made you know public and whatever. So yeah. after people see like, Oh, they, she sold this company for a quarter of a billion dollars or whatever. How did you manage? Like, I assume just some personal relationships and business relationships, things like that probably shifted after that. Um, did anything get weird? How did you manage all of that? I mean, not really. I think that there is a there's a misconception that when you sell a company, not all the time, but you still, you know, I mean, in my case, you know, we didn't sell the company for two hundred fifty five million, and I took home two hundred fifty five million. Right, you know, right, which I think people people a lot of people don't understand that. Um, I I think that there. Surely there's, and I, I can't think of anything that got weird per se. Um, and I think that I've done a pretty good job of like surrounding myself with people who like, it wouldn't be weird. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm I, I really pride myself in being very generous to like my close people and my friends and family, like, you know, we support our father and we did our mother too. She passed away eight years ago, but, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And I've, I've, you know, supported a lot of friends and I've invested in a lot of friends, businesses and things like that. But I don't think anything got particularly weird when all of that happened. And, and we really took money off the table at every a raise. And so when we actually sold the company, it wasn't that this massive payday as people might think. Um, so I think I'm a little more, uh, a little more guarded for sure about how like, um, people might, there's just this assumption, you know, it feels like on a much smaller scale that you can and should and do pay for everything because right, you sell right. the company for, you know, so, so there is that, but I don't know. I don't get too caught up in that. I mean, it's funny. There was, there was a Forbes story that I've been asked a couple of times to be in about like self-made millionaires. And I've always declined that because I don't, I mean, you're right. It's totally public that we sold what we sold for. What's not public and what's not correct is if you Google me, what it says my net worth is, which it's not. I wish it was. It's not. Right. Those things are never right. Yeah. Yeah. They're never right. So putting that out there more for like my children's standpoint of like not wanting to be a target and the Forbes like thing, like I don't want to like, I never felt comfortable wanting to say like, oh, how much money I'm worth, you know? Um, So for that, from that perspective, like I don't, um, you know, I, I tried, I don't want it to be out there and, you know, not like it's, it's funny. I, I, I was on a trip once and the art, we had a driver who had driven the, the founders of in and out burger and they had like tons of security. I'm like, that's a different level, you know? <laughs> um, but you know, you're, you're somebody like that. You'd be worried. You would be worried about your kids getting kidnapped. You know, I don't think anyone's coming for my children. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. They show not feel that way. Yeah. No, I, don't. Yeah, I, haven't, I never really thought that. Yeah, that's good. It's interesting, you know, just uh, the variety yeah, of friends of mine that have become, you know, that had public moments of becoming very wealthy. Yeah. You know, it's like not only do sometimes they kind of the, the environment around you changes, but then as you were talking about, your perception changes yes. and it makes you kind of roll through the world different and it becomes this landscape that no one is really prepared to deal with. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually weirdly caught it a little bit of an article of a story. I think it was Charles Barkley. He was talking about that and how when you're when you're a famous person with a lot of money, you're a target for getting sued and stuff like that a lot. Oh, sure. Knock on wood. Like Drybar got sued a lot, but you know that you know I, I don't think I qualify as like in that range of people. You know, which is which is. 
probably a good thing. <laughs> and also for any people who do, you know, look to start a business, that's why it's important to have an LLC yeah. because that way you can, someone can sue your company assets, but not sue you personally and take yeah. your personal assets. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Very important. Um, well, Ali, you know, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Congratulations on the book. Uh, it's a, Thank it's you. a great book. And, um, Thank I know you, 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 it's, you can tell how much, you know, heart and passion you put into it and experience. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for being awesome. And uh, thanks for hanging out for a while. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Like I was saying I, before we started recording, I'm such a huge fan and I know you give a lot of inspiration and help to people daily. So I, I read your stuff and I'm like, damn, how does he come up with this? It's so good. So, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for all you do. Yeah, my pleasure.